One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome to It Starts With Beer. I'm your host, Will Sis, and this is the podcast that can go in any direction. And in this episode, we go backwards, deep into U.S. beer history with author Greg Smith. This episode is brought to you by Back East Brewing in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Their recent taproom expansion with indoor and outdoor seating makes Back East the perfect place to enjoy excellent beers like Ice Cream Man IPA, Rakautra IPA, their award-winning porter, or any of the other delicious beers in their ever-changing lineup. Go to BackEastBrewing.com for more information. Greg Smith is an award-winning author of several books, including Beer in America, The Early Years, The Beer Drinker's Bible, and most recently, American Beer History from Mayflower to Microbreweries. He's lectured at the Smithsonian Culinary Institute of America, Great American Beer Festival, Craft Brewers Conference, and now I've got him on my podcast. Not only is he a prolific writer, but Greg is a Grandmaster Beer Judge and a founding member of the North American Brewers Association. I spoke to him from his home in Idaho. Let's take a listen. So um, I'm, you know, reading your books it, it reminds me of how much research you know really goes in into them. They're they're very uh, you know dense and thorough, but there's you know there's a love behind it. And I I like reading uh, beer history books the way I like to read music history books in that you know you learn about history but through an entertaining lens. What draws you to return to writing about beer history? Oh boy, that's a good question. Uh... I think just the whole, uh, it's part of having uh, great memories about having beers with friends or certain places that you had a beer. And uh, especially for me, I, I, I've always had a love of history. And so uh, a lot of times you can, you have the opportunity to get to a place like Francis Tavern in New York sure, or the Green Dragon in Boston. And you, you get to actually be in a place with historic significance and being enjoy, being there and enjoying a beer uh, kind of brings everything together. Uh, so I, I think that's part of it. Sure. You know, with um, uh, one of your books, uh, Beer in America, the subtitle is Beer's Role in the Settling of America and the Birth of a Nation. And I knew about taverns as kind of being the birthplace of revolutionary talk, but I didn't know a lot about so many other things that you bring up. Could you tell me about some ways that, that beer had a direct role in uh, colonial and early America? Sure. Um, the British government, it was, it was almost a model of theirs to encourage the development of taverns uh, be, because they knew it would be the central part of a community as uh, people uh, moved back and forth through an area uh, and as farms started coalescing together to make a village, they would uh, find that if there was a tavern there, that it meant now there was an opportunity for merchants to go through. And the taverns oftentimes were inns 
So they, it was kind of like a, a Holiday Inn a motel of that era. Sure. You could go in there, have a place to sleep, get something to eat, get something to drink. So it was good for, for the developing uh, merchant trade in the colonies. Uh, the other thing that they would do is they would often come in and they would take a, uh, a common meeting place and use it for things like holding court. Judges back then were not assigned necessarily to one city or one town. They rode, they called it riding the circuit. And they would travel from town to town. And when they came to the town, they would say, okay, on this day in the tavern, I'm going to be hearing court cases. I mean, that just sounds so strange to us now because we think of a tavern. I just have to get it out of my head. A tavern is not a bar. It was a multi-use place. Right, exactly. In, in some communities, before they had a church, the tavern was, would serve on Sundays as a, as a meeting place, you know, for uh, holding church services. It was also a convenient spot. And this came back to, to backfire the, the Brit, on the British. Uh, it was also a convenient spot to hold training days for the militia. Right. Uh, all communities were required to have a militia that could respond because the, the British Empire couldn't have an army everywhere. So the, the militia was kind of like the National Guard, a little more loosely run, mm-hmm. but they, they would respond and they learned to meet at the tavern. Interestingly, the tavern was also becoming a place where communities were having political discussions. So as things heated up with the various taxes that uh, the colonies thought were repressive uh, and tempers started uh, flaring, uh, these were the same people in the same place that were also training as militia. So it's it's no wonder that the first uh, two battles we, we know of, skirmishes in, in the Revolutionary War, Lexington and Concord, were, they met around a, a tavern on the green. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and so we don't think of that today. Uh, you know, we, we can hardly imagine that. But for them, that was a very convenient spot to meet and... One of the ways they got up to go to training day, by the way, was they would basically put on a kegger. Sure. If you went yeah. and, and completed your training, you got beer. So uh, it was one of the ways that, that the colonists very early on learned how to gather and how to respond to the, the British. I, I think in my head, you know, I, I think, well, you know what, all these these things really happened around taverns because they were all liquored up you know and so when when you when you've uh, ingested a lot of uh, alcohol that's when you you know make bold decisions it wasn't so much about that really right i mean or, or did that play a role as well well it, it, it yeah it's a, it's a there's a double-edged sword there mm-hmm. uh one on one hand if they if you went to the tavern most of the time it was um not so much to, to drink and drink a lot. Sure. You would have pints or, uh, or tankards of, of ale, but it was to have social discourse with all your neighbors. Um, later, it was taken advantage of by people like uh, Samuel Adams and uh, John Hancock, who uh, would, would fund uh, a keg of beer at a place, at a tavern, and uh, use it to... Um, rile up everybody there with you know impassioned speeches and that sort of thing about how lord north was so terrible and uh you know all the different acts of stamp acts and act and uh 
and so forth, the quartering act and that sort of thing. And we get them all wound up. In fact, they, uh, there's, it's hard to prove, but they, the, uh, story has it that that's how they got the sons of Liberty to dress up and get ready and go out and dump tea in the Harbor in Boston was they uh, they had them all gather. They started giving big, uh, you know, inflammatory speeches and then say, let's go down there and get that tea and dump it. And, and uh, supposedly that occurred in the Green Dragon. If it's not true, it should be, right? <laughs> I'm sure right. history is filled with with, uh, with near anecdotes like that. Yeah, it makes for a great story. Right. Well, I mean, you, you, know, you know a lot about the brewing process, and, and, I, and I appreciated how you filtered that into your history. Um, a lot of the early American brewing sounded like they were just kind of making do with what they could get their hands on. Was there real evidence that people really liked the taste of this beer early on, or was it just tolerated, knowing that water was uh, so taboo? Well, um, it, it's uh, it's hard to say. I, I I would imagine any beer was better than no beer. Right. Sure. <laughs> uh, it, but we see that again and again. If you when you find diaries and, and uh, remarks that people left as they moved westward through the country, they were using all different sorts of substitutes for things because they couldn't get their hands on uh, raw ingredient raw ingredients, let alone quality were on ingredients sure um so they were uh they were using all sorts of things so pumpkin corn uh, various vegetables which which is reflected today in our field beers uh category the um but they were doing it because they were looking for anything to, that they, they would be able to get carbohydrates to ferment uh, another odd one it took me for a while to find out what it was was the jerusalem artichoke no. Which is what was that one? Which is, it's actually a uh, a root, ah. and the root contains a lot of uh, carbohydrates. It's it's not quite like a potato or a, a sweet potato or anything. It's uh, more like a carrot, I guess, uh, but it has a lot of carbohydrates in it. And so they were using that as well. So they were using almost anything they could get their hands on. If they had some honey, they'd throw that in. Um, there were also shortages of hops, so they would use things like tree bark, or they would use uh, spruce tips. Um, so there were there was various substitutions. And as they went across the country, you you, uh, you saw this happen over and over again. In fact, one of them uh, famous was steam beers. Steam beer had all sorts of different recipes and all kinds of substitutions in it, uh, from the mining camps over towards the uh, Pacific coast. Well, we, we think of today uh, and the brewers being so experimental, you know, saying, uh, oh, look what my, you know, beer has in it. You know, it's got uh, these extracts. It's got these, uh, this fruit, this, you know, chili pepper. Uh, doesn't sound like, you know, we're really breaking new ground so much as we're returning to, to old ground in terms of uh, we're not doing it for uh, necessity, but we're doing it because uh, we like to break the boundaries. Sure. And, uh, uh... There's, gee, there's all kinds of beers we can think of like that. And a lot, a lot of them have become mainstream over the years, such as um, Lambiques. Mm. That's a very, very old style of brewing. And, and it almost died out uh, until, oh, geez, maybe 30, 40 years ago, mm. a, a resurgence came and people said, hey, this is really an interesting beer. 
kind of um, like that that India pale ale that uh, that has come back and never gone away. Uh, yeah. Right. Now, a lot of the, um, you know, the way I learn history, the way I like to learn history is through people uh, and characters, so to speak. When you were doing your research, were there any characters, uh, you know, real people that stood out to you? Because there's so many, you know, in your in your books, there's so many people that contributed to beer history. Right. Um, well, some of them I was drawn to because I knew some of their descendants, like uh, the Reich family of Springfield, Illinois. And uh, I'm pretty good friends with George Reichel. I think George is a fifth-generation brewer. Wow. Um, his son, by the way, is, is a sixth generation. He's with uh, Goose Island in oh, Chicago. Good for him. Uh, yeah. But uh, Franz Reich um, was, was the founder. A real interesting guy and originally a cooper and then got into to brewing beer. And that brewery was in the family for four solid generations. George ended up the fifth generation. He ended up with Anheuser-Busch. Mm-hmm. And a uh, uh, big, big lover of all types of beer. Yeah. So so that, that whole family uh, story really interested me. And then uh, some of the big brewers as well. Um, you know, Adolphus Bush, he was quite the character. Yeah. Um, he was uh, probably the the biggest self-promoter and uh, originator of, of different advertising schemes early on. And so he was of, of big interest to me. And then there were, there were other guys like Frederick Pabst, who uh, was, was actually a, um, an orphan, and he, he ended up being a, uh, a, a cabin boy on a steamship on the Great Lakes. Really? Worked his, yeah. way, worked his way up to captain until... Um, uh, he finally met his wife, married into the brewery, and when his father-in-law passed away, he took over the brewery and made it a great success. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of different stories. Um, uh, another one was the um, the story of uh, Anchor Steam beer, um, which whenever I get to San Francisco, I, I got to drink steam beer. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> and and when it's so great when it's fresh. Mm. And the whole story about how that was such a small brewery and how it, um, through just sheer determination, was it, it, it seemed like it was always on the brink of going under, but the owners, no matter who it was at any one time, somehow pulled that thing through. So that was another fascinating story for me. It, it is the hard luck stories that, that, that draw us into history. You know, hearing about somebody who inherited uh, everything and just kept the, kept the business going doesn't have the same uh, ring to it. Well, you know the, the the Civil War period up to Prohibition was new for me. I I you know I didn't know, for example, that they had beer at military hospitals and uh, that um, you know, I think it was that during the Civil War when tax when beer was first first taxed, um, and you know what how how was this post revolutionary war? Um, uh, I guess how was war post revolution? Uh, an impact on U.S. history as it correlates with beer? Well, um, it, it, it did have an impact. Uh, people were not uh, willing to, 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 to just give up their beer. You know, it, it was a part of life. Mm. And that came from the very early uh, colonial days in that uh, water they, they didn't feel was safe to drink because there was no processing plants. There was nothing to purify water. Uh, and they didn't know why, 
but uh, they knew that beer was safe. Well, for two reasons. One, you're, you're going to boil it. And number two, the pH in beer really won't support any uh, known pathogens. Mm. So it was part of the culture. I mean, everybody drank beer from uh, practically everybody from cradle to grave. Sure. And so um, when you got to into wartime situations, people still wanted beer. It was it was almost as natural for them to drink beer as it was to breathe. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. So, uh, and I've included a few different stories in there in the Civil War about how um, soldiers would always find a way to get a beer somehow. Mm. Um I was at one point I was earlier on I was in the navy and we were much the same way you know we we were we were constantly looking for a way to uh, to to find beer so and, it, very little has changed over over that time no nah, at least uh, as far as my own personal experience that's correct right, right just a quick break here to thank two other sponsors little red barn brewing of Winstead Connecticut you can go to lrbbrewers.com for more information on how to get their beer and Brewery Legitimus in New Hartford, Connecticut. Enjoy their outdoor patio and savor some of their amazing beers like Dr. Strangehaze IPA, Pine Meadow Pilsner, and a recent addition, Ode to Mom Session IPA, made in collaboration with the Pink Boots Society. For takeout, delivery, and other information, go to brewerylegitimus.com. Now back to my interview with Greg Smith. Well, you talk about, you go over the, the, the big dynasties in, in U.S., uh, Schlitz, Coors, Miller, and, and so on. Uh, was there a story that, that kind of captivated you among the, you know, the, big, uh, the big dynasties? Uh, I, I think the... Um... There's at least two. One is is the Anheuser Busch, and starts with Adolphus, as I mentioned him, mm. and then then uh, following the the history of the family, how they got involved with baseball, uh, all that sort of thing was that they and uh, adventures that they had, both good and bad, sure. um, were were really very interesting. But the, you know they always kept their eye on um, growing the business. Uh, quality and, and that sort of thing you may disagree with the style of beer that they uh they, they developed and that they uh sold and marketed sure but the quality there is is the same all the time and it's not a very easy brew uh, beer to brew uh so so that interests me and for the same reasons schlitz did hmm. and then the fall of schlitz when when everything went went south on them they were they were the biggest brewer in the world in the 1970s and we're not drinking schlitz yeah we're not drinking schlitz it's hard to find now yeah um so you know that whole story of how that happened uh was, was pretty interesting to me uh, another one that that uh, amongst the big brewers that i enjoyed uh researching and about was uh the light beer from miller and how they um basically kind of fell into it it was a brand that they had acquired uh through purchase of another brewery through the peter hand and um they were, they were already marketing a light beer it wasn't doing very well mm. they started test marketing it and they uh when they went to the to get the results they couldn't really determine you know well 
gee, this data doesn't make any sense. Right. So what they did was they sent their ever their um, agency out into the field to actually go into bars, and when they asked people what that were drinking it, what they liked about it, uh, part of the people said that it, it tasted good and they liked that. Then another whole group, uh, a, a fairly significant number, said it was less filling. Mm. And and from that the the ad campaign came out. And they started using uh, retired pro athletes talking about uh, one group would like it because it was less filling. One group would like it because it tasted great. And sales skyrocketed. It was the uh, most successful introduction of any brand ever in U.S. beer history. It was simple. It was something that people could relate to. And it had it had sports stars on it. Yeah, it, it, exactly. it was everything that you that you wanted. Was that, was that something... Looking at the scope of advertising in you know, for beer, was that something that really uh, stands out as an outlier, something that was way you know beyond anything else, or were there already hints of something like that in advertising prior you know to the um, uh, taste great, less filling? Well, there were there were hints at it, but they were not very sophisticated ads. Uh, a lot of it was in print uh, back in the day. Of course, they didn't have electronic media. Yeah. But uh, they would be very simple ads, you know, a pure product. Uh, you know, that, that would be a big uh, selling point in their ad. Sure. Um, but uh, they started, they started some, in the oh, eight, late 1800s, they started identifying first with baseball. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, they even had a, a was attempted to become a competing league. We call it the Beer and Whiskey League. Oh, nice. Uh, and uh, and so they, they started having this. They really didn't um, mature that relationship until, oh, I'm going to say the late 40s, early 50s, uh, when not just radio, but television started uh, coming into play and more and more things were broadcast. And uh, that's when that relationship really blossomed. And now it's, un- it's unthinkable. Uh, that, that you could separate beer and sports. Right, exactly. And that's something that, that we um, uh, just take for granted, but it's something that had to be invented. You know, someone got together uh, with some others who were pretty bright and said, let's, uh, let's make this connection. Sometimes these things come across uh, or come about because they're more organic, but yeah. uh, I imagine there were some savvy uh, advertisers back then. Right, right. And, and you know, with, with the other interesting thing, and, and I have a, a chapter of the book on sports, mm-hmm. uh, was that it wasn't just baseball originally. It was uh, they had fights that they broadcasted, you know, uh, heavyweight boxing championships. Sure. They also had bowling was a, a big sport. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like Don Carter and Dick Weber and these, these guys uh, had contracts as, as big or bigger than a lot of the baseball stars of the day. Wow. And, you know, we don't see it that often now on, on a televised um, uh, basis, but, but bowling was huge. And, and they, they, uh, Budweiser actually sponsored, uh, they had team bowling and, they, bowling, and they sponsored their own team. Um, so they, some of these first attempts, we don't see them around still today, but they were uh, big events at their time. Sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything's a product of, of its era. And um, 
Yeah, I could see how appealing bowling, uh, you know, would be just you know letting letting off steam, and of course, in between uh, frames, you, you got to drink beer. You know, make perfect sense. Right, and to broadcast it would be really great because it's one camera or almost one camera, <laughs> maybe, maybe two. Right. Now, so it was a very very easy to produce those shows. Good point. Good point. Now, did you get a sense during your research um, what it was like to be a brewer? during say like the late 19th century early 20th century not not anybody that we would have heard of but you know kind of someone working in the trenches what was it like to to work at a at one of these big outfits uh not much fun mm. <laughs> if if you uh if you look back in areas like in cincinnati for example which was a big beer town because it had a big german population from the very beginning they have a section of the city that's still known as over the Rhine mm -hmm. and and uh, the people that were there they would work uh, six ten or twelve hour a day um, six days a week uh, for ten or twelve hours and then they would have uh, half a day on Sunday they were required to work uh, wow. they had they had set pay it wasn't a lot of money um, they had to most times they had to stay in company housing. Mm. Uh, so it, reading about that, it, it reminded me of uh, my grandfather was a coal miner at the turn of the century. And he was stuck in a, a community where there was a company store. And it's like you, oh, couldn't, sure. you, you couldn't escape that life. And it was much the same way for the brewers. And they there were several attempts that they made, uh, part, uh, basically it was Cincinnati that started it to form unions or trade associations um and the brewers fought back um you know they said okay lock out and we're going to hire other people to come in and take your job mm. didn't you know it was it was uh it was a long struggle just as it was for all organized labor in that same period of time mm. uh, new york had several uh beer strikes and uh later as they finally got organized it in and I, I want to go over to the New York City example. When they struck in New York City, they were so they were very effective. The uh, local Teamsters went out in sympathy, partially went out, and what they did was the Teamsters said, "We'll deliver any beer to any bar in New York as long as it isn't brewed in New York, Ooh. because we have sympathy for the uh, workers in the New York breweries." What they did inadvertently was put those breweries out of business oh, man. so some so some of these breweries that were doing a million barrels a year which was a lot back then sure like sure. like rupert uh yeah. and uh, f and m schaefer um peels uh rheingold you know these big breweries would get to the were driven to the point where they went out of business oh. you know yeah. Because it gave a toehold to all these out-of-town brewers like Schlitz and Bud um, and so Miller and so forth. Ballantyne, so, I guess, was, was one across the river in Jersey. Yeah, Ballantyne was across the river in Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, the brewers also shot themselves in the foot in the New York area because they're, they, they were able to sell enough that they didn't have to worry about expanding. Oh, okay. Where if you were in a smaller city like St. Louis or Milwaukee, expansion was the key to your survival and in the long run it, it did indeed turn out to be the key to survival well one of the things that i really do like about uh your work 
um, is that it, it doesn't just stick around the major cities. Um, in, in American beer history, you cover all of the United States, seemingly, and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> some of its territories. So, you know, I got to learn about what beer was like being brewed in Washington State, in Alaska, in Hawaii. So, you know, kudos to you. Just a lot of research. Um, were you finding that, I mean, what were some of your best sources, you know, outside of previously published history books? Were, were, were you able to, to uncover material uh, throughout all this research you've done? Well, there's, there's a lot of uh, good stuff around. Uh, it, it requires some digging because oftentimes it's not readily available, but sure. uh, tax records, um, census data. Uh, since the, the U.S. Census was uh, really handy for finding uh, and tracking along, for example, uh, gross domestic pro gross domestic product mm. and uh, how many uh, barrels of beer are made in individual years and how those two coincide. Sure. Uh, so, so census was great for that. There were also things back in the day called city directories. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was another one to start down the trail of tracking down a brewery is that um, if you would go to these different cities and, and it could be a very small city, it was sort of like a phone book of the day, but before they had telephones, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you wanted, you wanted to find somebody who supplied malt, for example, you would go to the city directory and it would list it, these businesses by what they uh, specialized in or what they sold. And then you could find the name of the business and the street address. Nice. So that helped as well. And uh, if it had a very, if it had numerous addresses, does that, was that a sign that it was a very large uh, business and it took over several city blocks, that kind of thing? Right. Right. And, and they, just as with, uh, leather manufacturers or uh you know meat packers didn't they they had their own section of the city where they specialized in this oh, God. um you know like in in new york the uh, city for example they still ref uh refer to areas that as the meat packing district or the pickle district sure and that sort of thing because that's where those not today necessarily but that's where those businesses uh sort of clumped all together yeah. breweries were the same Mm -hmm. And so were the suppliers of breweries. Okay. If you if you would look up the address, and one that comes readily to mind is San Francisco, and you looked at the people that were supplying malt and brewery supplies, they were, uh, and then you looked at the addresses and you looked on a city map, you'd see they were in a very small area of the city is where they concentrated. Mm. Um, and that was that was fairly common. Well, I, uh, moving along in history, I, I enjoyed your chapters on the temperance movement and um, and prohibition. What do you think was what the smartest brewers did to survive that time period? Well, the the ones who did who did really well surviving um, had diversified in a manner of speaking before prohibition hit. Mm. So, for example, um, Schlitz uh, and uh, Anheuser Busch. Uh, in New York, Rupert, um, they they not only owned um, the brewery, they owned property as well. And in some cases, they owned uh, ancillary businesses. Uh, for example, um, the Bush, they, um, they, they were uh, 
not enamored of the railroads and the way the railroads ran. Uh, they would, the railroads would especially complain about the brewers because the product weighs so much. Oh, yeah. You know, it's about eight pounds per gallon just of the liquid. And so they said, yeah, oh, you're beating up our rail cars. We're going to have to charge you more to rent the rail cars and everything else. So uh, Bush started a separate rail car business to, to build railroad cars That's that they smart. use not just for themselves, but to sell to others. Oh, yeah. So, so even during Prohibition, when um, they couldn't be brewing and selling beer, they could, do, they could build rail cars. Uh, Rupert in New York uh, was another one who used the tide house system and, and a lot of the big brewers did that as well they would they would say to go into a bar and they'd say you know gee this is kind of sparse in here but we can supply you with a really you know nice hand carved Brunswick back bar and uh, oh, we, can, sure. we can supply you with tables and chairs and we could even help fund your free lunch which will make people come in and buy beer the salty uh, stuff <laughs> And all, all you got to do is we, we'll, we'll even supply the credit for you. Well, after a while, hmm. what they would do is say, uh, you know, you haven't paid your bill. And, oh. geez, it's, it's like 10 months now. I, oh. I think we're going to have to take over the property. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, so now it was really an exclusive uh, facility for their beers. And, and so a lot of them came by property that way. In fact, you can still go around Chicago and see buildings that had the Schlitz Globe uh, incorporated into the brickwork. Really? Wow. Yeah. Because they were saying, like, this is our stamp, uh, and we are we are more than beer. And they were that because I, you know, I thought when I think about ones that survived prohibition, I thought it was the ones that kind of made you know near beer or made soda or ice. But um, yeah, you opened my eyes to the idea that you, you had to, uh, you know, really go outside your comfort zone or find it, find another mm -hmm. uh, business to. to well, and a lot to. of them, right? A lot of them tried to limp along with uh, things like candy and ice cream and near beer, as you say, which almost everybody hated. Yeah, uh, sounds bad. And and so forth, but the guys who really uh, were able to to do well and survive prohibition were those people that owned other businesses. Uh, or, or things like property they could sell off. Or like with Jacob Rupert in New York, he owned the New York Yankees. Mm. And, and so he still had income uh, through the Yankees. And he also had a, a great deal of real estate holdings. Mm. So those type of breweries uh, survived Prohibition. And when they, um, when they came out of Prohibition, they did fairly well. Sure. I tried to look for a kind of echoes in history um, that, that we still hear today. And uh, one I was thinking about is popularity of style of beer. You know, it seems like when lagers became the thing, it was what almost everybody drank. And now the popular style in craft beer is New England style IPAs. Does that compare to any other time in, in, in history where we had a love affair with a different style of beer, uh, not 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 lagers, which which you certainly document. But was there a big spike in in another style of beer, and was there a you know a big porter fad or anything like that? Well, uh, porters were a very popular beer in the uh, 1700s, mm. um, and and of course all variety of ales. Uh, most of it was a local thing, but it was for a general style. They were the, I guess, the ales and and uh, the pale ales were very famous uh, in a, in Great Britain, like Bass and Allsop and and, and 
a few of the brewers there from Burton on Trent. Mm -hmm. They they were very popular. Uh, Porter was another one. Um, and, and it's easy to sort of understand the, the popularity of a porter because back in those days, there weren't a lot of sweets in people's diets. All right. But, but this beer was, uh, you know, a, a little bit of hints of chocolate, a little bit of hint of sweetness. And so it was a, a fairly popular beer in its day. Uh, bloggers came about, especially the Pilsner style, when they came to the U.S. in the uh, late, especially mid to late 1840s, because it paired so well with our climate. Mm. You know, we have a pretty hot climate across most of the country. And uh, this was an easy to drink, thirst quenching beer. And it's still, you know, fairly popular. It's still probably, what, 90 some percent of the beer sold are in the U.S. are Pilsners. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it becomes, you know, what, what attracts you to it. It's not sometimes not even a marketing thing uh, or even a, you know, objectively quality thing because there's a lot mm -hmm. of good tasting beer. It's it's saying, you know, I like it because of this. And as you're saying, yeah, it might be because of the climate. My, my personal history, when I went over in the Navy over to uh, Scotland, I was tasting ales over there and go, we don't have anything like this in the United States. What's this about? I bet. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and it was that same period where a lot of people were having the same experience as me. And in the 80s, and so you come back here, there's none around. <laughs> uh, Jack McAuliffe, he was a submarine sailor in Holy Lock. He came back and really started the first new brewery in you in the u.s in decades yes I mean, he was making ales yes uh and it, it slowly gained momentum um but, but originally and we didn't have the internet then uh people would would call up each other and say hey there's a new beer out it's at this distributor you can go pick it up and mm. you know by word of mouth it, it slowly grew in, until the point that we got there that those beers um then started making up a sizable chunk of, of sales, as, as you noted, sure. uh, it, it, you know, up to near 10% of the sales now are ales. So, right. so it's, it, it's seeing that same thing come about again. People, people didn't have many choices. And then when you give them choices, Hey, I don't have to just have uh, chicken every day. I can have a burger or I could have a steak or I could have pasta you right. know it's liberating absolutely yeah, right. uh, now now so much of beer history is about german american men uh, that's just the way it is but in your research uh what role do you think women or minorities have played in u.s brewing history uh some <laughs> sure. early on early on in the colonial days it was the, the home brewery or even if you owned a, a good deal of land uh, the brewery was in the kitchen, mm -hmm. and so it was the women who were brewing the beer. Yes. Um, the, the men, when once became profitable, they kind of pushed them out of the way unfairly, but that's mm. what happened. Sure. Uh, but now we see, you know, a, a lot of women uh, into drinking craft beer and and uh, brewing, and and uh, we we have uh, a growing number of women in the industry now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, the the interesting thing uh, to me is that um and, and part of this has been the culture that's been handed down to us and is that when i i've gone to judge at the great american beer fest or the world beer cup mm -hmm. um you know i'm i'm looking at the beer and uh trying to evaluate it for different 
you know, uh, chemical compounds in it. Right. But the women judges will say, oh, that's uh, anise or that's, um, you know, you give you, you know, any other spice, sure, pick one. Sure. Right, or right. Something, Cardamom. Which because, <laughs> which because, yeah, because they've done more with uh, cooking and baking than the men have. Ah, they, yeah. they are more readily um, able to identify things in the beer. Right. So, we're, we're used to the finished product. They were there from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, from the individual components, and they're picking those out. Sure. And and you know, uh, from what I've seen from the you know '80s and '90s on, it started that way with the women brewers, and now they've gotten uh, more and more of them are going to brewing schools and studying, and they're they're uh, now able to associate. Well, I got that smell, and it's this in the beer, and it's caused by this. And that's really what you want in a brewer. Absolutely. And so, and so in a way, they, they've come to, uh, as they've entered the industry, have an, a, almost like a built-in advantage <laughs> because sure. they've experienced that and a lot of men haven't. Yeah, absolutely. Use it. Um, and, now, and now we hear, I mean, was it such a closed shop uh, for, um, for, for white people that other um, another other races uh, were not didn't have any kind of presence until more recently, or were there spikes in in that or regionally? Have you heard anything you know about that? Oh, just just what I've been able to read uh, in contemporary stuff that sure. it it appears there's more and more people of all uh, of all 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 different cultures and getting into beer and, and and so for example um there are great breweries now in mexico in mm -hmm. italy in spain mm -hmm. uh, it's not just in the u.s it's all over the place there's there's breweries in costa rica and thailand and uh and these these are small craft breweries so this uh whatever we call it here in the u.s microbreweries or craft beer or whatever you want to call it uh has even though it, it uh, grabbed stuff from the old world and then reintroduced it, it's now spread. Uh, Japan has a lot of great breweries, you know, so I, I don't think it's something that there are borders anymore, not, not nearly as it was, say, 40 years ago. Now there's all different types of people uh, with all different types of background uh, in, entering the business. How, how would you think, how, how would you compare uh, breweries today to breweries in the 19th and 20th century. And I'm, I'm talking about craft breweries. Uh, how are they most like these breweries and how are they most different? Well, uh, they're most like those breweries in that they, they try to, once they develop a product, they try to make a consistent batch to batch. Mm -hmm. Um, that's important. If you you're known for a um, a juicy or hazy IPA, that's all well and good. But then the people who like it, they want it to be that way, whenever they come in and order it. That's a tightrope walk uh, right there. Yeah. Uh, so there's some latitude for craft brewers in that they can experiment with all other styles. But once it becomes popular, now they got to do it over and over again. So that's how they're similar but in the same vein it's how they're different because the technology available today simple inexpensive technology 
in, in a craft brewery makes them well more prepared and, and makes it a somewhat easier task than it was in the last or early last century. Sure. Um, the, the instrumentation in the brewery and the way you can measure temperatures and the way you can measure uh, specific gravity uh, or, or uh, Play-Doh um, is so much more well-developed now. And it's it, the technology uh, and mass production has made that technology inexpensive. So you can control precisely the temperature in a vessel, even in a very small brewery of seven barrels, 10 barrels. Isn't that amazing? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a big advantage that brewers today have over brewers of yesteryear. Yeah. I can only imagine, you know, what, uh, you know, the ghost of someone from a hundred years ago looking at their, you know, at their brew houses today, just, you know, I don't even think, you know if they recognize it. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there anything else that um, you'd like to talk about in terms of your um, research or what stands out uh, to you uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what you enjoy about uh, the history of uh, beer in the U.S.? Well, um, understanding how different um, things outside the industry impact the industry. Mm. We, you know, we talk about how um, beer, beer isn't uh, recession proof. But it is recession resistant <laughs> sure. because pe people still drink beer. But if you look at, at some of the big um, economic downturns through history in the U.S., uh, for instance, there was a uh, one big one in 1873, another one in 1893. Mm. Uh, we all know about the Great Depression here. Right. And so every time you look at that and you try to plot uh, either number of breweries operating or a uh, number of barrels of beer sold, you can see dips uh, at each one of those um, periods of economic crisis. So, so today, <laughs> I have a bit of a, a fear mm. for a lot of the craft brewers. If you're not, and, and it's lessons from the past. Yes. If you're if you're living hand to mouth and you you haven't uh, you you don't enter this on sound financial footing, you could be in trouble. And so there might be a, a case because of this, the COVID-19 and the associated ec economics yeah. of uh, us seeing a decline in the number of craft brewers. Uh, the good news is the ones that come out of it will be stronger than ever right? Uh, if they can get to the point where they come out of it. My thanks to Greg Smith, whose books are available on Amazon and BrewersPublications.com. I've updated my website, so for links to previous episodes of It Starts With Beer, go to BeersnobWrites.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time, sip well. Mm -hmm.